How are you guys doing this morning? Okay, if you have your Bible, I want to ask you to open it to Daniel chapter 6. We've been trekking through Daniel and uh, asking the question, God, can I trust you? So if you have your Bible, open it to Daniel 6. Uh, we're going to read all the way through the famous story of Daniel in the lion's den. Um, or maybe you have a, a smartphone and you can pull up a, a Bible app like Version or another one on your phone. But you're going to want to try and follow along. I encourage you to get in the habit of bringing your Bible to church. It's a, it's a good habit to get into. Uh, so before we jump into a story that is familiar to many, and uh, for some of you, you haven't heard the story before, why don't we uh, ask God to help us, uh, give us some understanding this morning and speak to us. If you pray with me. Father God, uh, we thank you for a chance to get together and a chance to open up your word, the Bible. Uh, God, we are just asking that you would speak to us this morning. I thank you for uh, kind of what you've revealed to me in my studies this past week. And uh, I just pray, God, that, that my words would be your words and that you would have a word for each of us today. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, so Daniel chapter 6, we're going to start right in on verse 1. And I'm going to read it and I'm going to give you little tidbits of commentary along the way. It says that it pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom. Now let me stop right there. Who is Darius? Well, Darius is the new king. So the Babylonian Empire has been overthrown, as we talked about last week in Daniel 5. And now the Medes and the Persians, the Medo-Persian Empire, is beginning. And Darius is the new king of that empire. Now it's a vast empire. We're talking about right around 550 B.C. or so. Um, and so what Darius does is he, he divides up this vast empire into different territories. And then he appoints 120 satraps. You can just think of them as governors. So he appoints 120 of these governors to, uh, to, to kind of oversee the kingdom. And then it says in verse 2 that he appoints three administrators over those 120, one of whom was Daniel. That says the satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. So basically, this is just the king saying, okay, we got this big, big kingdom to oversee, and I want to make sure that, that you know, everyone's paying their taxes, that there's not all these revolts. And basically, they, this is his way of, of kind of overseeing things and keeping order. Verse 3. Now Daniel, who was one of those three uh, who oversaw the 120, now Daniel so distinguished himself among the other administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the entire kingdom. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. So basically, here is Daniel, and he did everything with excellence, but also he was a man of the utmost integrity. And so they couldn't find anything that they could, they could, they, they found no dirt on him. Okay, these guys who are very jealous of Daniel getting ready to be appointed the number one guy. So finally, verse 5, these men said, we'll never find any basis for any charges against this man Daniel unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So these administrators and satraps went as a group to the king and they hatch up a little conspiracy, okay? They said to the king, King Darius, may you live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors 
have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days, except for you, O king, we'll play to the ego here, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, your majesty, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. Okay, so now the stage is set. How is Daniel going to respond to this? Verse 10. It says, Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees and he prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. So business as usual for Daniel. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and they spoke to him about his royal decree. King Darius, did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any god or human being except for you, your majesty, would be thrown into the lion's den? And it says that the king answered, Yes, the decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. Then they said to the king, and here it comes. They've got him now. Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, your majesty. Order the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. And then it says that King Darius, when he heard this news, he was greatly distressed. Now, that word in the Hebrew has to do with being greatly displeased with oneself. I mean, he was really, really upset with himself. Why? Well, there's two reasons. One is because he realized at that moment that he had been tricked. He realized at that moment why these guys in his inner circle had come and wanted him to pass this law. They were trying to set up Daniel, right? They were jealous of him. And he realized at that point exactly why they came to him. And so he was ticked about that. But the other reason why he was deeply distressed and upset with himself was because he thought so highly of Daniel. Daniel was a rising star. I mean, Daniel was his top guy, the guy he trusted over everybody else. And now, basically, he's just put a law into place that's going to get Daniel executed. So he's deeply distressed about this thing. And so it says, as we continue in verse 14 of Daniel 6, it says that King Darius was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. So all day he's trying to plot and scheme, how can I get Daniel out of this mess? But then in verse 15 it says, Then the men went as a group to King Darius and said to him, Remember, your majesty, that according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. Now, you might be like, what's the deal with this no decree that the king, he's the king, can he do whatever he wants? Well, this is a crazy thing, but this is actually documented in historical sources outside of the Bible. Okay, that in, during this Medo-Persian empire, that when a king passed a law, he, it, that was it. it. It could not be changed. It could not be reversed. It, this was the deal. And we actually have record, an extra-biblical source outside of the Bible, of a king in that era who, who passed a law ex- executing a man who the king believed was guilty of a crime. And the king came to come to find out that the man was innocent. And it said that the king could do nothing about it. And he just basically repented and apologized. But that man was executed because according to the law of the Medes and the Persians in history, the way it was set up was that once the king set the law in place, that was it. It was going to go forward. So they're reminding King Darius of this. And so King Darius has no choice. He's been trying to figure out a way all day. And here it comes in verse 16. It says, so King Darius, he gave the order. And they brought Daniel and threw him 
into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, Daniel, may your God who you serve continually rescue you. Verse 17, a stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Now, what's this deal with the signet ring and him sealing it? Well, basically it was like this. So there would be this pit where the lions would be in the bottom of this pit and there'd be a small hole or opening at the top enough of an opening for them to, to, to take the person and throw them down into the hole. And there would be this large stone that would be placed over the opening. And what they would do is once they threw the person in and then they rolled the stone over the opening, they would take chains and they would wrap them around the entrance. And then after they wrapped the chains around, they would take soft clay and they would put the clay into the chains. Okay, So holding everything in place and then... The, the king and his nobles would take their signet ring with a little el- emblem in there and, and make an impression in that clay, and the clay would then harden, and they would know if someone tampered with the opening. They would know if Daniel slipped somebody 20 bucks and uh, you know, managed to get, get somebody to free him or something like that. So basically what this is telling us is that there is no way that Daniel is getting out of this situation. He's thrown in, and this thing is sealed, and he, he is toast. Okay, That's basically what's going on there. There's no way he could escape. Verse 18, it says, Then the king, he returned to his palace, and he spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. At the first light of dawn, the king got up, and he hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called out to Daniel in an anguished voice. Daniel, servant of the living God, Has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? And it says in verse 21 that there was a response. Daniel called out, may the king live forever. Sign of respect to the king. He says, Daniel says, my God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. They haven't hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight. Nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. It says in verse 23 that King Darius was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And I want you to notice this sentence here because we'll come back to this and talk more about this. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. Then it says in verse 24, at the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into that lion's den along with their wives and their children. And before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. You're going to be like, man, this is harsh. This is crazy. I mean, you could see him throwing, throwing these guys in, the, con- the, the conspirators, you know, in his inner circle. But their wives and their children, I mean, that's just downright nasty. Well, here's the, here's the reality, okay? 2,500 years ago, the king was always on guard for who might be, will, be trying to take him out. And it usually came from someone in, in the inner circle, someone who had an inside connection. And so it wouldn't make sense for the king just to take out the guys that conspired against him, okay? He had to take out the wives and the children because... To avoid retaliation, to avoid, you know, those, those, those sons growing up and then taking the king out later because they, you know, he took out their, their father. So that's just as harsh, but that's just reality. That's just what was going on. If you were a king back then, that was just order of business. But here's the, the point that we need to pick up from this story. The point here is that it also tells us that 
this lion's den wasn't like, it wasn't just a couple of, of puny little lions or lions that were overfed and, and really, you know, old. And so they were just really passive. And, and Daniel just kind of managed to, managed to just be real careful and not get eaten in the lion's den. These were angry, hungry lions going after, uh, after these guys. And so it just sets up this miracle beautifully. And it says in verse 25, we just got uh, four verses left. Then King Darius, and this is, this is just amazing to me. Then King Darius wrote to all the nations and peoples of every language in all the earth. This is what he said. May you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. Now, check out these next few words. And you've got to remember, this isn't the psalmist writing some great praise to God. This isn't King David. This isn't Daniel. This isn't someone that's, that's raised to know who God is. Okay, This is a pagan king. And check out his words. For he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. And it says in verse 28, So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. You guys, this is a powerful, powerful story. It's a story about a man who was willing to die rather than dishonor his God and not pray to him. And it's about a God who delivered him. And it's about a king who saw all this take place and came to faith in the one true living God. But it's also very powerful in what it tells us about faith. And that's what I want to talk about today. What I want us to do is I want us to take a look at the two main characters in this story. We've got King Darius and we've got Daniel. And in one respect, they're both the same. They both come to faith in the one true living God. But in another respect, the basis for their faith couldn't be more different. It couldn't be more different. And that's what we're going to look at today. Because the key, the key difference between Darius's faith and Daniel's faith is the key to having a faith that cannot be shaken. Okay? So that's what we're going to do this morning. Let's start with King Darius. Okay? Let me ask you guys a question. Why did King Darius come to faith in the one true living God? Why did he come to faith? Well, first of all, he had Daniel, who was obviously this influence upon him, right? Daniel was kind of the catalyst. But what was the main defining event that brought Darius to faith? It's not a trick question. Somebody yell it out. Come on. Yeah, he, he, saw, he saw a miracle. He saw Daniel delivered. This was unbelievable. There was no way this could happen. It was impossible without God. And so he comes to faith and, and realizes the only way this happened is, is there, this, this God that Daniel worships must be, must be God. He must be the one true living God. That is how he comes to faith. He comes to faith because he sees something. God moves in a mighty way. And many of us can relate to this kind of a faith. Because for many of us, this is how our faith journey began. That at some point along the way, for a great many of us in this room, there was some point in our lives where, you know, maybe we were kind of unconvinced or skeptical or, you know, God just didn't, wasn't really real to us. And uh, at some point, I know I've totally done this, we, we prayed. We were in some sort of a binder situation and we basically said, Oh God, 
If you would just come through for me this one time, if you would just help me to get this job, or if you would just help me to find this, this, this girl, or you know, if you would just change the situation, if you would just come through, money is so tight, if you would just do something, God, if you would just intervene, then I'll believe in you. You ever made a prayer like that? You ever said something like, ever made a deal with God like that? If you would just do this, this one thing, God, then I'll believe in you. Or if you would just do this one thing, God, then, you know what, I'll really commit myself, you know, wholeheartedly to you. I'll, I will really follow after you. I will go to church every Sunday. I promise, God, if you just come through for me this one time. And for many of us, th- that, that was a starting point for us. That was a point where God became real for us. And, and many of us in this room, I've heard tons of your stories of faith, your testimonies. And, and that is one of those moments where it's like a spiritual marker in your life. You can, and, and what you do is, you come back to that. You come back to that at different points in your life, and that sustains you, and it upholds you, and it's, it's a great starting point as a basis for your faith. And basically, this starting point we see in Darius, King Darius, who has a faith based on what God does for me. If you want to fill that in, uh, it's, it's faith based on what God does for me, how God has shown up, how God has moved, what God has done. You can point back to an answered prayer or an event or something where God moved in a mighty way in your life. And this is awesome, you guys. I don't want for you to think that like there's anything wrong with this because this is a beautiful thing. Uh, and and here's, the, here's the reality. When this kind of thing happens, when we have a real God moment in our life, we, we mark that and we keep coming back to that, right? And in the beginning... We come back to that a lot, and that is so powerful that, you know, no matter what our situation, no matter what we're going through, I mean, we, we anchor back to that moment in time where, you know, God moved and God delivered and God did this thing for me. It was so amazing. And so, you know, we go through a rocky patch. It doesn't matter. That, that, that holds us up. That keeps us energized. That keeps us motivated. That keeps us believing, right? But here's what happens after a while. If you stay at a, in that kind of that starting point phase where your faith is based on what God does for me, what happens is some time goes by. Okay? And after some time passes, the, the novelty of what God did kind of loses a little bit of its luster. And, you know, it, it's, it's still an amazing thing, but it just kind of loses some of its power somehow for you. And so then what happens is if you go through a season where maybe you're not totally feeling like you're hearing from God or, you know, you've had a few prayers that you've really wanted God to come through on and God hasn't seemed to answer, um, what happens is your faith starts to become like this roller coaster. It starts to get shaky. And when God answers a prayer, when you see God move in a certain way, well, you're like, you're way up on the mountaintop again. But then when you don't hear anything from God for a while, what happens? You start doubting, you start wondering, you start questioning everything, right? And your faith just gets shaky if your faith is based on this idea of what God does for me. See, when you have that kind of a mentality, what happens is you take verses like Daniel 6.23 that I said we were going to come back to, I think we've got it up here on the screen. Um, and what you do is you build your entire belief system around it. Let me, let, let's look at this verse. Daniel 6.23. It says that when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him. Why? Because he had trusted in his God. And so if you're not careful, what you do, if you have this faith based on what God does for me, is what you, you kind of do this thing. You say, okay, well, this is, this is great. See, because Daniel trusted in his God, God brought him through this situation completely unscathed. Because Daniel trusted in his God, God delivered him from his circumstances. 
Look how God moved, and look at how amazing that was. So if I trust God, this is the trap we can fall into. So if I trust God on this thing, and just totally trust, and I put God first, then I'm going to come through unscathed. Not a mark on me. That's how he did it for Daniel. And just like it says at the end of Daniel 6, that Daniel prospered, that's what's going to happen to me. If I just trust God, then I'll come through unscathed, and I'll prosper. Anybody see a little bit of a problem with that way of thinking? That that could set us up for something? Let me ask you guys a question. Can you think back to times in your life when you've been disappointed? Uh, When things haven't turned out exactly as you thought that they would? Maybe you've been frustrated because something just didn't go the way you'd hoped it would. Um, And a lot of times... There's kind of two groups of us. There's one group of us in this room that we, we go right to God with that. And we're, we, we transfer our disappointment to God and our frustration with God. I think that's a very healthy thing. It's a very real thing that we do. Um, we just say, God, I don't understand. Why, how come? Where were you? What, what, what happened? And then there's another group of us, and we don't do that. But I really believe that deep down, somewhere deep down in our soul, we're actually doing that. And we have that whether we want to acknowledge it or not, we deep down our disappointments and our frustrations in life, we're, we're deeply frustrated with God. And, and we may not ask the question because we, we fear God, we reverence God or whatever, but, but that is there. I know for me that that's, that's definitely the case. The times when I'm most disappointed and when I'm most, most frustrated in life and with God are the times when God doesn't show up the way that I'm just, why didn't you show up this way, God? I was praying. Why didn't you come through this way for me? I don't get it. What's the deal? Why am I not coming out unscathed? And when we fall into that mindset, what we have to remember is that this book is so much bigger than just Daniel and Daniel chapter 6. If you flip a few pages earlier in the Old Testament, you come across the story of Job. Many of you have heard the story of Job, but if you haven't, the story of Job is a story of a man who was righteous in the eyes of God. He was blameless before God. God loved this man. And this man suffered incredible loss in his life. The reason that that story of Job is in the Bible is to remind us that just because we trust in God doesn't necessarily mean that God's going to make everything perfect and rosy in our lives. And it doesn't mean that God has turned his back on us or that God doesn't love us. That, that is to help balance us out theologically. And if you look at Paul, Paul in the New Testament, he's considered by many to be the greatest Christian who's ever lived. Sorry, Mother Teresa, God bless your soul. But um, Paul is considered the greatest Christian. He's the, the guy in the early church, started churches all over the Roman Empire. Traveled around, unbelievably committed to God. Okay? Now, I want you to check out these words that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. Here's a man who totally trusted God, totally honored God with his entire life. Let's see if his situations and his circumstances always panned out really nicely for him. 2 Corinthians 11, 24 and 25 and verse 27. Paul writes to this church in Corinth. He says, five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent the night and a day in the open sea. He goes on and on and on. I, I can't go through the whole thing for you. But then in verse 27, he says, I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. 
I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and I have been naked. Is this not amazing? I mean, because there's something in me that just kind of goes back and thinks, you know, if you honor and you trust God, God's just going to kind of bring you through like Daniel. That, that's just kind of my, my default way of thinking a lot of times. And so we just have to be really, really careful of that mindset. If I trust and honor God, then God's going to bring me through unscathed. God's going to prosper me in everything that I do in kind of the way that I think he should. I love how author and pastor Pete Wilson puts it in his book, Plan B. This is the quote. I think this is just fantastic. I think we have it up on the board. Um, We must decide if we're going to put our faith in what God does or in who God is. If you place your faith in what God does, that's what we've been talking about with King Darius. If you place your faith in what God does, you'd better prepare yourself for frustration and disappointment because you're never going to figure out God's ways this side of heaven. And that is just, that's just, we, we don't understand the things of God. And if we constantly are thinking, you know, and basing our faith on what God does for me, and we, we think things are going to turn out a certain way, if we, if we base our faith on that, we're setting ourselves up for major disappointment and major frustration and a roller coaster ride of our faith where it's really shaky. And it just totally, you know, where your circumstances are good, everything's going great, you're, you're flying high in your faith. And when it's not, your faith is a mess, okay? We, we have to move beyond that. I want to give you a couple of verses here. These may not be the easiest verses for you to, 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 to see, so just prepare yourself. And before you just kind of, you know, get too defensive about them, um, just try and keep an open mind as we read these two. They're going to be a little bit of a challenge. The first one is 1 Thessalonians 4.3, which actually tells us what God's will is for us. And these are the words. This is the New Living Translation. It says that God's will is for you to be holy. Many of your translations, the word is God's will is for you to be sanctified. Okay? What does it mean to be sanctified? What does it mean to be holy? Basically, what it means is it's God's will for you to become more like him. It's God's will for you to become like Jesus Christ. Okay? That's God's will for us. It does not say that it's God's will for us to be comfortable. It says it's God's will for us to be more like Jesus Christ. See, and I know at least for me, I don't know how it is for you, but at least for me, um, the way for God to make me more like Jesus Christ is not just to remove all my circumstances and, and situations that are negative and to take out all the adversity in my life and just to think that somehow that, that that's just going to help me become more holy. Now, some of you may be like, man, you just give me a different spouse. Oh, my goodness. You would see a lot more Jesus in me. You just give me a lot less cars on the road driving up 66 or, you know, whatever in the morning uh, trying to get to work. You would see me be a lot more Christ-like on the road, right? So you, you, you just give me a different boss. Oh, my goodness, my boss. No, not my boss. I didn't mean, John, I'm, I really didn't mean that. That just, you know what I'm saying. Um, but the reality is that Jesus tells us that it's what comes from within us that really speaks about our character and who we are. And so um, it's not really about our circumstances. They just bring out our true colors and our true character. Here's the, the, the fill-in that I want you to, to fill in from that, from 1 Thessalonians 4.3. God is more interested in developing our character than in changing our circumstances. He's more interested in our character than our circumstances. And for me, sometimes my character is honed and refined 
through difficult circumstances. That's where we really see our true colors a lot of times, as hard as that is. And let me give you another one. Romans 11.36. It says, For everything comes from Him. This is talking about God. For everything comes from God and exists by His power and is intended for His glory. Everything comes from God. Everything exists through God, by God. And everything ultimately exists for God. So fill this one in. We exist for God's glory. That's what God's word tells us. Now, this may be one of the hardest concepts to wrap your mind around. My wife Becky and I were talking through this sermon, and we were just, I mean, just wrestling with this one. Because, you see, we live in, in this culture today. We're products of our culture. Okay, our way of thinking is deeply influenced by our culture. If you didn't know that, I'm sorry that you're just finding that out. But it is definitely, definitely true. And our culture has a what's-in-it-for-me mentality. It has an all-about-me mentality. It's got an instant gratification mentality. It has everything to do with me, 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 getting my needs met and what I need. That's just the reality of the culture that we live in. We look through a really thick cultural lens okay, when we see the world, when we see things. Okay? God's word doesn't look at it through that same lens. Okay? The lens is taken off, and the reality, the absolute truth, is that everything doesn't exist for us. And, and I, I can say that, but then I walked right out of here, and I, I believe everything actually does exist for me. But the, the reality is that everything exists for God. It exists for God's glory. Okay, so let me try and flesh this out a little bit. Daniel knew this, Daniel existed for God's glory. And what did God do? Okay, Daniel honored God. And God honored Daniel for the glory of God. Okay, And the way that God honored Daniel was he brought him out unscathed. Totally without a scratch. Saved him. And, and this was a way that brought honor and glory to God. So Daniel honored God. And God honored Daniel by bringing him out unscathed. And as a result, this deeply influenced King Darius. Darius comes to faith. And who knows how many others in the kingdom through this decree and all the, the ripple effects came to faith. Okay? But you know who else honored God? <clears throat> the first followers of Jesus Christ, the early disciples, they honored God too. You better believe that they did. They honored God so much <clears throat> that... Um, they couldn't stop talking about the fact that they had seen Jesus appear to them after he was crucified and that he was actually the son of God. And they basically risked their lives and ultimately went to their deaths because they refused to recant. They refused to stop talking about Jesus Christ was the true Messiah and he actually was God. See, the first followers of Jesus, they honored God too. And you want to know something? They honored God, and God honored them for his glory. But the way that God honored them was totally different than the way he honored Daniel. Okay? He brought Daniel through totally unscathed. But these first followers of Jesus, the way he honored them was actually allowing them to die a martyr's death. And they have brought so much glory to the kingdom. It's, it's not even, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. They may be the greatest heroes of all time. Because through the witness of these early believers in Jesus Christ, billions and billions of people have come to faith 
in Jesus Christ as their Savior. And I'm one of those people. You know, for me, it's just as powerful. It's powerful if you're Darius and you see God do this amazing miracle and deliver Daniel from the lion's den. That's a powerful, that's a powerful thing. But it's equally powerful and equally brings glory to God that you're willing to die for your faith rather than, than say something that's not true. And say, I didn't see it. It didn't really happen. And so in both cases, they honored God and God honored them for his glory. We exist for God's glory, not our own. Now, with that in mind, let's look at the basis for Daniel's faith. We've looked at, at Darius. His faith is based on a what God does for me mentality, which is many of our starting points in life. That's great, okay? But Daniel's faith is a more mature faith. It's a more unshakable faith. That's where we want to get to. And we see this described in Daniel chapter 3. We talked about this a few weeks ago with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These were Daniel's friends. These guys, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Daniel, these guys, remember, they were exiles from Israel, and they were captured and taken to Babylon, and they refused to defile their God by eating the, the food that was forbidden for them. They refused to bow down, right? They refused to stop praying to their God. And so uh, we see their words, and it really captures Daniel's faith here. You might remember this from a few weeks ago, but here's, here's how it's worded in verses 17 and 18 of chapter 3. If we are thrown, they're, 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 they're addressing the king. They say, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, okay, basically for not, for not bowing down to you, king, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And check out these next words. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. Okay, so they believed that God was going to deliver them. But these next five words are so incredibly powerful in, in shaping the basis of a faith that's unshakable. Verse 18. But even if he does not, if even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. You see, the faith of Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego and Daniel is not based on what God does. It's based on who God is. It's based on who God is. I want you to fill that in because this is really, really essential for us in, in developing a faith that's not easily shaken. It's not just this up and down roller coaster ride of faith. See, a faith based on who God is, is a faith that says, but even if God doesn't deliver us, even if God doesn't move in this situation, even if God doesn't answer this prayer that I'm praying, even though I believe that he will, but even if he doesn't, I'm going to stay true to my God. I'm not going to bow down to you, O King. Because of who my God is. My God is awesome. And my God is holy. And my God is worthy of all my praise and honor. So the question I want you to wrestle with today is if you're here today and you really feel like, yeah, looking back on my faith, like it's, it has. It's just, it's got lots of ups and downs. And like it really, you know, it, just depending kind of on where I am in life, like my faith is just this, this roller coaster type of a ride. If, if that describes you, what I want to ask you is, are you basing your faith on what God does for you? Or how God shows up? 
or how God answers your prayers. Because if your faith is kind of based on this, God, what have you done for me lately? Uh, That's a really, really difficult position to be in. It, It sets you up for tremendous disappointment in your life and a really shaky faith. And I would argue that it's really not sustainable. It's a starting point for so many of us, but it's not sustainable. We have to move to a faith based on who God is. Now you may be saying, okay, well that's great. Based on who God is. God is holy and awesome and powerful, but I need more than that. Who is God? How do I know who God is? A faith based on who God is. Well, let me tell you something. God has uh, helped us out a little bit with this thing. And God has given us his word, the Bible, to tell us who he is. This book is primarily a story about who our God is and what that means for us. And so I encourage you, if you've gotten away from reading this thing, this is how you know who God is and how God feels about you. But God doesn't stop there. If you need something else, this entire Bible points to Jesus Christ. And what we find out is that if we want to know who God is, we've actually seen God. Okay? Because God came down to this earth in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus says in John 14, 7, he says, If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. What Jesus is saying here is, you don't have to wonder anymore about who God is. I am God. Okay, that's the entire basis of Christianity. If you're wondering, like, what is Christianity all about? What separates it from all these other different religions and beliefs? It's Christianity, okay? It's believing that Jesus Christ is the way that we see God, the way that we know God, the way that we come to God, the way that we understand who God is. So th- that's, that's the whole basis of our faith, okay? We have a God, and we know who he is. We know how he handles certain situations. We know how he feels about us because he came down to this earth and he is a God who serves. He is a God who pursues. He is a God who is crazy about us. Crazy about us. So much so that he was willing to humble himself and come down to this earth and die on a cross for us to demonstrate his love. What we're going to do here uh, in these last couple moments is we're going to celebrate communion. And I ask if you're involved in communion to please go ahead and and come up and and take your positions. Um, Communion is basically us carving out a time to celebrate what Jesus Christ has done for us. It's a celebration of who God is. God, by his very nature, is love, and he is a God who serves us. And um, if you've never really fully wrapped your mind around who God is, or that God is actually Jesus Christ, when we see Jesus, we actually see God fully, uh, I want you to read Romans 5, 8. It says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So, you see, God wasn't satisfied even with just giving us words, okay? As incredible, as inspired as these are, God said, you know what? I'm going to show up. I'm going to demonstrate my love for you. I'm going to show you who I am. And so when we celebrate communion, and you guys can just go ahead and come right on across, uh, but as we celebrate communion, that's what we're celebrating, that we do know God and how crazy he is about us. And um, we've got a special song 
that is going to play as you receive communion. And I just, I want you to listen to these words. It's actually a familiar song, a uh, secular song that, um, that I think really speaks to our God and the lengths that our God would go to show us who he is and that we can have a faith based on that. Let's pray. Father God, uh, we thank you for um, this time here. And uh, God, we are here because we long to have a closer connection with you. We, we long to have a better and stronger and more sustainable faith, God. Help us to, to move from uh, a faith based on what you've done for us, which is awesome and wonderful, God. And we celebrate the, the things that you've done in our lives and we continue to pray for those things, God. But help us to move ultimately to a faith that is grounded not in what you've done for us, but in who you fundamentally are. We thank you for your work on the cross. We thank you for coming down to this earth and demonstrating and showing us who you are and what you're willing to do for us. And uh, in these next few moments, help us to remember that we exist for you. This is our time to worship you and to celebrate you and to thank you and to praise you for what you've done in our lives, God. Help us to, to die to that that, that cultural thing in us that, that just thinks it's all about us when it's really about you. Uh, visit with us right now as we take this time to remember and to celebrate who you are and what you've done. In Christ's name, amen. Please feel free to come forward as you let.